I can't remember which form it was that I was filling out to get into some school, but they asked, you know, what my ambitions were. And I showed that to my dad and he said, well, just write down you want to be editor of Vogue, of course. So I did. <laughs> wow. That, it was just that simple. No yeah. problem. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. For this episode, I'm super excited to share my conversation with two of the most influential voices in the fashion industry, Global Editorial Director of GQ, Will Welch, and Global Editorial Director of Vogue and Chief Content Officer of Condé Nast, Anna Wintour. are in for a treat because my guests for today are truly some of the most authoritative thought leaders shaping the landscape of modern fashion. And as you'll hear, everything tangential to it. As heads of Vogue and GQ, two of the world's leading fashion and lifestyle magazines, Anna Wintour and Will Welch are essentially gatekeepers at the intersection of art, fashion, culture, sports, business, and everything in between. Anna quite literally is a legend in the business. She's famous for championing exciting new designers and ushering new trends to the forefront of public attention. And Will, an incredibly talented writer and editor, has deservedly risen through the ranks of GQ, reinventing their image and business practices on a global scale. In our conversation, we discuss the radical evolution of the fashion industry from highbrow to accessible, the incredibly fast-paced nature of digital trends, and what Anna and Will believe makes a great fashion house leader. I've been lucky enough to know Anna and Will personally and have immense respect for both of them and their influence on in our industry. I know you're going to enjoy hearing the insights of these two amazing tastemakers. So let's get into it. So it is really my great pleasure uh, to have on our show today, Anna Wintour from Vogue and Will Welch from GQ. So thank you both so much for being on the Nordy Pod. Thank you for having us. Good to see you, Pete. Yeah, and I see you too. So first of all, I'm really happy you were willing to do this. Uh, I think it's going to be really interesting for people to learn about our industry from your guys' perspective, which is different from what I normally talk about because, you know, I'm really usually talk about from the Nordstrom perspective and how you know we specifically interact with customers as a commercial enterprise. But what you guys do and your role in the fashion business is so integral and I think important that it's, it's going to be fun for people to learn about the impact that you guys have there. So I think maybe the best way to start is for maybe each of you to give us a little bit of your background and what brought you to where you are today. So Will, you want to go first? Okay. Um, I... Grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and then moved to New York City when I was 18 um, and just loved to write. So I was graduating from college and trying to figure out, well, how do you get paid 
to write for a living um, and ended up getting an internship at a downtown New York music magazine called The Fader and just threw myself into like writing stories for them on spec as an unpaid intern. And then I had a somebody I knew socially who liked my work at The Fader uh, who was a longtime editor at GQ called me and he said, there's this opening for an associate editor at GQ and I think you should interview for it. And I said, uh, what do I know about GQ? And that was on a Friday. And then on Monday morning, I called him and said, I thought about it over the weekend and tell me what I got to do because I really want that job. Um, that was 2007, April of 2007. So I just hit 15 years at GQ and at Condé Nast and have just sort of like, worked my way up over the years following my interests. Um, I started as an associate editor. I also, my my role at GQ prior to editor-in-chief of GQ US was as creative director. So at one point in my career, I did all words. At another point in my career, I did all fashion and pictures. And then over the last few years, I've been able to combine all those experiences over the 15 years to... Well, Pete, uh, Will is being very modest. He oversees all of GQ worldwide and all our global titles do now operate completely as a global newsroom. And from GQ's perspective, obviously, Will has been the force behind that and has connected all these different territories together, whether it's across digital or print or social video, what, whatever platform it may be, he is the force behind that transformation, that incredibly successful transformation. So as an example, how many different versions of GQ exist out there in the world? I mean, I imagine it's by language or country or what have you. How many are there? Yeah, there are 19 around the world. So this wow. morning, um, I ran our global leadership committee meeting over Zoom, which had leadership from Japan, Taiwan, India, France, Italy, Spain, Mexico, Latin America. And we all work together as one editorial team, sharing story ideas, different programs we can be doing, talking about how we're reimagining GQ's Men of the Year. And it's so cool for me, like, personally, because I'm learning about the world through the lens of GQ, like working with the, with our team in India and Taiwan and all these fantastic places that previously I just didn't have exposure to. So it's, it's well, really it, been exciting. It gives you the opportunity to put a spotlight on talent in India or Taiwan, wherever it may be, and it's published simultaneously through, throughout the world. So it's, it's a much more efficient way to work, but it's also... It is such a force, the way that Will is able to deliver audiences around the world, that obviously it, it makes a lot of sense for everybody involved. Yeah, I, I would imagine as the world's become a lot smaller, based on the way the information travels around, that that's really impacted how you do your job too. And I think about when I was first a buyer at Nordstrom, we had this idea that something would happen in New York or perhaps Europe, and in about a year or so, it would come to the West Coast because it took that long for adoption of style and trend to, to go across the country, the world. I mean, now everyone's exposed to whatever's going on at exactly the same time, no matter where they are. Yeah, instantly. And it also moves so much faster in terms of how long that influence is going to exist. I mean, a story can trend online for maybe two days, three days, and that's kind of then it starts. They're interested yeah. in something else. It moves along. So it really is. I can't stress enough how what Will is really doing is running a daily newsroom, responding to the news, making the news shifting culture, creating culture. 
All right, so Anna, now we're going to get to hear about your uh, background and what brought you to where you are today at Vogue. <laughs> what brought you to the Nordy podcast, Anna? <laughs> well, great affection and respect for Pete. That's that's why I'm here. I'm, he's a, been a, a wonderful supporter of Vogue over and of myself for many, many years. But I, I was brought up in journalism in, in England. My dad was a editor of a newspaper. I grew up taking calls in the middle of the night from Lord Beaverbrook. We only had one phone at home at that time. And I remember going up up the stairs and knocking on my parents' door to say, Lord Beaverbrook's on the phone. And, you know, it was that kind of journalism. The boss would call and then my dad would go to the newspaper or being on holiday in Venice and getting a call to say Marilyn Monroe was no longer with us and my father sitting there at the you know in a beautiful Venice hotel cursing because he didn't think the paper had uh, had done right by the story so it was it was ingrained in me from an early age and also if you if you know anything about growing up in England you at that time way more so than today you were very much defined by what your parents did and where you went to school, et cetera, et cetera. And fortunately for me, my mother was American. So I, I moved here at an early age to escape that uh, umbrella of being uh, my, my dad's daughter. And I worked at a number of publications, including New York Magazine, which was the best experience that you could possibly have because I had a wonderful editor called Ed Kozner who knew nothing about the, the subjects that I was interested in, which was basically lifestyle, men, men's fashion, will, women's fashion, home, art, the performing arts. And he really gave me an opportunity to express myself in a weekly in a way that you wouldn't have had the freedom maybe in a more uh, established publication. And the work that I was doing there caught the eye of the then editorial director of Conny Nast, uh, Alexander Lieberman. And he called me a few times. We had a, some very interesting conversations. And at, at some point, I decided to to leave New York Magazine and, and come to Conny Nast as creative director. And I have been here in one role or another ever since. And uh, I feel very, very fortunate in the position that I have. I'm so lucky in the colleagues that I have and the ability to work with really the best in the world, uh, whether it's editors or writers, photographers, videographers, designers. It, it is an incredible platform to do the job that you love. Right. So, you know, and I'm interested, you know, you're, you're so connected with fashion and everything. When you were a young person, did you envision like fashion as being the thing that really was exciting to you and what you wanted to be attached to or, or did it just kind of happen serendipitously along the way? Well, you have to remember I was growing up in London in the 60s, which was such an amazing revolutionary time for fashion. So you'd have to be sort of living on a, under a rock not to understand, you know, what was happening, whether it was the Beatles or Carnaby Street, Mary Quant, the Rolling Stones. I mean, it was just such an exciting time. And it was also a breakdown of a very strong class society. I mean, duchesses were sitting down with designers in a way that had never happened before. And so as a kid watching all that happen, and particularly growing up in a household that was full of journalists and editors and people that were making the news, there was an excitement that I certainly was drawn to from an early age. Hey, so Will, so how about you? It sounds like 
music perhaps was an a entry point for you that got you attached to the world of fashion? I mean, obviously you're interested in writing, but if we were to ask your the teenage Will Welch about what you would be doing at this point in your life, what would you have guessed you'd be doing? Yeah, I mean, when I was a teenager in Atlanta, Georgia, I was interested in the Grateful Dead and Outkast, and that was pretty much it. But <laughs> what, when Anna's just describing like Carnaby Street and the Rolling Stones in London in the 1960s, it makes me think of the first time I ever heard Outkast when I was playing on a AAU basketball team at warmups. And we were actually at Tri-Cities High School, which is where Andre 3000 and Big Boy went to high school and they were playing one of their early albums. And I was like, what is this music? And it was just a very similar dynamic where you have, you know, just style coming just encountering it on the streets every day and you know music fashion style street style going out being in clubs being in rock clubs being in dance clubs what what people are wearing you know we now look at the runways but we're also always looking at what's happening on the street and in the club and connecting all of those things pete as you well know fashion does not happen in a vacuum it's reflecting the world around it and i think our responsibility as editors and journalists is to reflect that culture. And there is often when you you go back and look at pictures, uh, well, from my childhood or Will's childhood when we were growing up, you, you look at a fashion image and you can instantly remember, you know, what the movies were that people were talking about, what music they were listening to, what was happening from a political perspective. It, it's, it's full of information, what people are wearing and how they want to present themselves to the world. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. You, you mentioned sports just as an example there, Will. And I think about yeah. how how much things have changed relative to the way sports has had an impact on fashion. You think about the NBA in particular, all those guys are super wrapped up and concerned about what they're wearing. Right. And so whether it's the draft or whatever, you could see that the way these guys are dressing and we get it here, you know, we have it every year. There's some version of a guy that's from the university of Washington is going to get drafted. He shows up here. He might be six, nine, 210 pounds and wants a suit, you know, in a day, which is hard to do. But, um, we, we, we try to accommodate because there, there's all this expectation around how, how they, dress they represent how they their own personal that's style. That's relatively a new phenomenon. I, re, I remember, you know, meeting some basketball players maybe 10 years ago, and they were so excited by the attention that GQ and even Vogue was starting to pay to them because they said they had been so used to being treated as sort of slightly strange yeah. People, you know, not not part of a world that people could respond to or be influenced by. And certainly designers did not want to dress them. And that has so completely changed in the last decade or even a little bit more. But it wasn't always that way. And I think, you know, so much of change has happened because media has expanded so much. And we're reaching audiences in a way that we we didn't before as as wonderful, but somewhat rarefied as a, a print world is. Now that we have all these different platforms, the reach is so much more significant. Plus now I'm, I'm a size 14 shoe. So now when I go to Nordstrom, there's plenty of options for me, thanks to all these athletes. <laughs> and, you know, 10 years ago, it wasn't so easy. We're looking out for you, Will. No problem. We'll, we'll take care I of you. I appreciate that, 14 Thank you. feet. No problem. Hey, so, you know, Relative to that, I'm, I'm curious, it takes me uh, to my next question. So you think about all the cultural stuff that goes on and how that impacts fashion, I think, from your guys' point of view. And, and without getting deep on any of the specific stuff, but you think about 
just all the societal issues and the cultural issues. I mean, from sustainability to the 15% pledge or all these different things. How do you guys think about those influences and the way that that impacts fashion? Yeah, I think for me, I remember the when I became editor-in-chief of GQ, the first meeting, all I talked about was how we were going to build GQ as a community-based platform. Because as many employees as there are at GQ all around the world at all of our different editions, we can't make... Uh, an issue of GQ in print or a day of GQ online or on social without all of these collaborators. So if you think of it as a community, there's the staff members and then there's all of our writers and photographers and stylists. And then that circle echoes out to the readers and you're just building a community that people want to be a part of. And so when you're thinking of a magazine, not as this like GQ beaming its message down from on high here at the World Trade Center, but a real like community-based approach of collaborators with different people offering their perspective, offering their talent. It's just a much different, it's, a, it's just a very different way to approach leading a brand, creating content, having, you know, a voice and authority. And you're just sort of like reaching your hand out to different people that are interesting across culture, offering them the opportunity to stand on the GQ platform and speak to this audience that we've been building over the last 70 years. Going back to your point, Pete, there's no question in my mind that uh, fashion was a much more elitist world certainly when I first uh, entered it, and it was maybe for uh, not as democratic as it certainly is today. And I I think you've seen because of the growth of social media and all the different platforms, everybody opened their doors to a far wider community and much more diverse and inclusive community. But I don't want to pretend that that was always the case because it's simply not. But then we look now and we see the designers that are really having an impact. I mean, obviously we were so sad to lose Virgil, but he totally changed how people looked at uh, at fashion because he was such a multitasker and he could look at it from so many different perspectives. Regrettably, I don't think we are as diverse or as reflective of the world that we live in as we should be. I, I think sometimes we look at the, the runways and it's a very particular point of view. And in response to that, we actually just launched something that we were calling open casting, just sort of asking our audiences, if you want to be a model, please submit you know, your image and answer these few questions. And that was up for less than a week. And I think we had over 70,000 responses. So I think everybody wants to be part of the fashion community. They all want to be part of our world and they need to be seen and heard. And I think the more that we can do to make them, to make the world feel that the fashion world is welcoming and that it is, uh, is a community, the better it is for everybody. I, and, I think it's so important. And it is true, whether it's the Vogue program Anna just mentioned or the way Virgil operated as the, the leader of Louis Vuitton men's, you have to do it with intention, not just kind of set the value and hope for the best. Yeah, you know, you bring up that example of Virgil Abloh and it's uh, that rings true to me. I mean, and, and, and what you said about the way fashion used to be perceived and and how that was, you know, content was absorbed by the general public. I, I would say the same thing in my generation of doing this business. When I think of what the designer or luxury business meant 30, 40 years ago, it was expensive clothes for old rich people. 
and that mm-hmm. I'm sure that may offend some people, but that's that's kind of how it seemed to me because it wasn't attached to any of the touchstones of what was going on culturally, whether it was music or you know sports or some of these things that we've talked about. But w- over time, what's happened is all that stuff's kind of come together. And, you know, I think the good thing about it and I, and is Virgil Abloh as an example. I remember really clearly when he was first doing his thing and there was a lot of buzz about him there. But there was always that conversation like after the show or whatever, like, well, but he's not a designer. So, I mean, I don't really know what this means. So he's he's kind of an influencer. He's not really a designer. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. yeah. Is he, he a real designer? Yeah, he was a creative quotes. genius yeah. who absorbed fashion and culture from so many different sources, whether it was music or the street, film, art. I mean, he he was interested in everything. And what a um, perfect example of if fashion used to be sort of a world full of no's, like excluding people, saying no to things. Virgil said yes to everything. He gave everyone his phone number. The answer was always yes, 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 and more, more, more. And that, I think, is such a signifier of of the transformation of the fashion industry and the fashion world overall. Yeah, so it's almost as if the way he came in, what he did, and the impact he made almost created a tipping point of what it meant to be a designer, right? So, I mean, to your point, Anna, what was great about it wasn't whether he could sew or was a pattern maker out of the trained situation, but he was a creative person that could articulate ideas that were relevant to the, the world that he was living in. And that just got, you know, it just touched a lot of people. I mean, so do you guys feel like as you contemplate designers and how that's all evolving, that the door is opened up to who could actually be a, you know, a creative leader for a house? I, I think absolutely. And I think we're at an interesting time right now where there's a really dynamic mix of some of the designers and creative directors at the fashion houses have a real fashion background and they they went to design school and they know how to cut a pattern and they know how to sew and they know how to lead an atelier. And then others are more from the like creative director school where it's all about like energy and culture and less about like actually designing a garment. And I do think it would be boring if we had all creative directors leading the fashion houses or if we had all designers who like went to fashion school and really understand the discipline. This mix is right for our time. Will is right. The most important thing to remember when houses are looking for someone to lead a house is that that person, whether they went to fashion school or they came from a different path, is they have to be very open. I think often in the past, if you look, it was a very narrow path towards being a fashion designer and taking over a house and maybe only interested in a, in a certain world and certain cultures. I, I think you have to be so open to the world around you. You have to walk in the street. You have to go to museums. You have to watch movies. You have to j- just breathe in the culture. You, you, you can't create fashion today or excitement around fashion by doing it through an ivory tower or being surrounded by people that say yes to everything that you're trying to do. You, you need people who contradict you and question you. And to me, a real designer is somebody who is so interested in the world and who can put all that fascination with the world out through the runway. That is what we need more of in fashion. These people with 
grand visions, which doesn't necessarily mean expensive, but somehow they're looking at the world through a very broad lens. Especially, in, we mentioned the global era for GQ and Vogue, but these fashion houses too are speaking not just to elite communities in Western Europe and America, they're really thinking globally. And so you need somebody who has the sort of open aperture that Anna's talking about. Yeah, it's true. No, I, I think all the stuff that we're, we're all saying is that just whatever is going to be meaningful has to be informed by stuff that's relevant and it's on people's minds and resonates with people personally. And, and yeah, we, we see all that, you know, Anna, you're talking about how things have evolved in a certain way so that Lots of people could enjoy it, wear it, like it. I remember when we first started working with Jeffrey Kalinsky, I, I learned so much from him. One of the things he talked about is he goes, gosh, you know, when I first started, your buyers, they would buy like the most outrageous thing on the runway that was beautiful and spectacular. But he goes, but who's ever going to wear, where are they going to wear that? And who's going to wear that? And and his approach was, let's buy beautiful clothes for people that read a, lead a real life. And that was a big turning point for us to to not treat the designer business like it's some aspirational trophy out there, but that's more part of people's real people's lives, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It does. How, how I'm, I want to ask you, Pete, how is uh, the evolution of the tech business and AI affecting what you're doing at Nordstrom? Yeah, you know, that's that's a good question. I get asked that. I'm probably not the person that can give a great answer about AI, but data helps inform good decisions. So I, I, you have to embrace data in ways that we, we never did before. But it's it's also true that, you know, there, there's a real art to what's done when you're talking about attaching clothes and fashion and style to real people in their lives. And uh, at least at this point, I'm not sure how there's a substitute for people that are in it every day and are attached at that level with customers and have a, a real curiosity. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious what you guys think about how yeah, AI we, is well, I mean, I think it. our view is that it's a great tool and that we need to use it. You know, remember when iPhones ended our lives and how that changed <laughs> our lives? I think it's it's similar with AI and we, we just have to be very... I mean, obviously, Will and I and everybody at Coninas really believes uh, in journalism and that I think as more and more uh, information becomes available, I think trusted voices, trusted titles, trusted stores like yours are going to become even more important because there will be so much more misinformation out there. So I think it's just being sure that you protect your own house, so as to speak, but use AI in a way that can be very useful and maybe free up your time to be more creative. Yeah. I'm sure you feel the same, Will. I, I do, yeah. but And I think, you know, it's going to create a moment where it is important to have sourcing. And I do think we're in a good position by being at these brands that have trust and authority. But the other thing I think is really important, you know, in the media business, we just experienced so much disruption at the hands of the internet. And I think it's fair to say that our company and many others were a little bit behind the ball in the early days of the, the digital transformation. And so for me, what's so important about leading GQ as Web3 comes along and as AI come along and so on is to just experiment, to actually like use the technology and, and keep putting one foot in front of the other rather than like trying to hold it at arm's length and, and hope for the best. Yeah, because it's going to be part of our lives. Absolutely. So let's use so. it in the most positive way. Yeah, that makes total sense to me because, you know, we're in an industry that's kind of been turned inside out too. And the internet in a lot of ways has been great. 
certainly great for customers in terms of choice and what have you. I, I'm curious your guys take maybe more specifically on how the internet and just how you know information has evolved in a way that it's dramatically changed the publishing business that you guys are in. And you've spoken to it a little bit, but I'm curious about how you see that because it's I can only imagine, like you said, you've got to embrace evolving or you're going to it's not going to work. And that's certainly how we feel over here with what we do. Well, I, I mean, I feel like the digital world has been incredible for publishing. Instead of having just one uh, outlet, we have so many more now. And it's just figuring out the right use, like AI, the right use for every platform you know, around the world and what's going to work locally, what's going to work globally. But we're able to reach, you know, instead of hundreds of thousands or a million, two million audiences uh, on a regular basis, we're reaching hundreds of millions. After the Met uh, this past May, Pete, I got sent some numbers the next morning by uh, the CEO of, of TikTok. And I was a little bit, you know, I'd been to bed a little bit late, later than <laughs> usual. And I was looking at these numbers and I saw the top one was 75 million impressions. And I thought, oh, well, that's okay, I guess. And then I, I said to myself, well, this is TikTok. I think it should be a little bit higher. So I looked again and it was actually 75 billion. So oh when gosh. you're reaching those kind of audiences, how how lucky are we? And And I think we just have to look at our cultural moments, whether it's the collections or the Met or GQ Men of the Year as global opportunities rather than local opportunities. And that's really how we plot our strategy over the year. What's local, what's global, and where can we have the biggest impact? Right. And Anna, I, first of all, I got to congratulate you on, on the way that you've been involved with the Met and you've grown and expanded that. The reach is really incredible. I mean, I, I'm not really surprised by what you said in terms of the reach on TikTok, but I, I even see it I playing out of my own. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I mean, TikTok, so, I, it's become such a big deal. I guess the reason I said I, I wasn't entirely surprised is, you know, my 12-year-old daughter talks about the Met. And there's no way yeah. Yeah. 20 years ago, 12-year-olds were talking about the Met. And it's because... The veil's been lifted and people can access and see this stuff and be influenced by it, inspired by it. And then there's, again, I keep using the same word, but it's there's relevance attached to it. So it doesn't appear like it's for someone else. It's kind yeah. of, it's for everybody. But how do you think about how fashion balances art and commerce? Because at a certain point, it's more than art, right? Because people buy the stuff, they wear it. There's a practical application of it. How, how do you think about that balance? I mean, I think if you come to Men's Fashion Week in Paris for the last five, six years, what you experience is fashion is almost like the center of the cultural Venn diagram. It's where music, art, performance, all sports all collide. And you feel it in the way, just the very structure of a fashion show, from the production to the visuals, to the casting, to the music. So fashion has just been this incredible cultural meeting point. And um, when you're at Paris Fashion Week, it's like the whole world of GQ, which we touch so many different industries and worlds, but everybody sort of collides there. And I'm sure soon it will, you know, in the past, it's been Milan that had that feeling or New York, and I'm, I'm sure it will continue to move. But right now it's Paris and Paris Men's Fashion Week is like the center of our cultural universe. 
And I understand the importance of a of a big show. Designers want, and if they have the resources to do it, all the bells and whistles that comes along with you know the big houses. But you can find such talent if there really is an extraordinary vision with a very small show. And I think that's, if we're talking about art and commerce, I think that's part of what we need to do and what our teams need to do is not only be focused on the big and the beautiful, we have to find the up and coming talent that will be our future. And that is why you know GQ works with young designers, why we created the Fashion Fund all those many years ago. And I, I think that's really so important to keep it in proportion. So I think we can love and be seduced by the over-the-top show, but we have to be equally open to something that maybe is smaller on scale, but just as visionary. Yeah, you know, Anna, maybe you can touch on a little bit more because I know the sense of responsibility and affinity you feel for emerging designers and trying to nurture that and give them a platform to be seen and known, um, some of these amazing creative people. At the same time, while you clearly understand the power of those big houses and the established designers. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit how you balance your time sure, to make sure that you're sure. finding and, ways and, to elevate? And Will does, does something very, very similar with GQ. But I, I think, you know, sometimes out of, of tragedy comes something very positive. And after 9-11, which uh, occurred right at the very beginning of New York Fashion Week, Vogue decided that they would support the next generation of young American designers who, you know, were not able to show for obvious reasons and had lost deposits, lost all that they had and were really, I think, really, really struggling. And the community came together, uh, Carolina Herrera, Ralph, Tommy, Donna, everybody was so supportive. And I think, you know, for all of us, I, you know, many of the stores helped us uh, as well. I think it's so important that we come together as community to support and mentor and to help as much as we can the next generation. I think that's part of our responsibilities in the jobs that we have. I know it's how you feel just as much. And here we are 21 years later and the Fashion Fund's still going strong. And do you want to talk about the work that GQ is doing maybe with Adam? And Yeah. yeah, um, We have a similar program at uh, British GQ where they identify uh, young menswear designers and support them not just, it's it's similar program to the Vogue Fashion Fund, not just monetarily, but also with mentorship. And one thing that I think about a lot for GQ that I've learned from Anna is when you have Anna's support as a young designer, it's not just for that year, it's ongoing. And I think we've all seen the difficulties in that like actually early mid-career for a young designer. Like the fashion business is extremely difficult. And you can create a lot of buzz and energy as a young emergent designer who's talented, but it's that second stage where you have to establish a real business and continue it where the designers who we believe in and that we help launch, I yeah. think it's important that we stick that, with them. That was so, That's so true, Will, and that was particularly relevant during COVID where yep. we took the fashion fund and repurposed the funds that we had into a, an initiative that we called a common thread. And we asked uh, designers, no age limit, uh, and no limit on what their business looked like to apply for grants. And Pete, you would have been astonished to see some of the names that wrote, uh, filled in the application and asked for financial support because because of COVID, they were, they were just really, really having trouble 
surviving. So, you know, it's ongoing. Yeah. I, I think sometimes, as Will was saying, being at the mid-level is almost so more hard. difficult than starting out. You know, you I know you've done so much yourself. Well, no, we, we definitely see it. You get the excitement of a new brand and that takes you to a place and there are a bunch of awareness. Yep. And then can they figure out, you know, to your point, Will, how to make it a business? And that is not an easy thing to yeah, do. And how, so can, I, and how can we we help them do that from, from your position on the retail side, from our position on the editorial and mentorship side as well? Absolutely. And super important, I think, to encourage these young designers leaving fashion school not automatically to think that they have to open their own house, that maybe it might be a wiser path to go and work for a designer that they admire, or maybe spend some time in a different country and learn learn their craft in other environments. But I, I think one of the downsides of social media is that everybody thinks that they can be super famous, super fast, <laughs> yeah. and that's not always the best route forward. So. Sometimes just advice and counsel is is all we offer. Right. You've touched on this a little bit, but I want to take a double click into this for each of you is how do you find satisfaction in your job? Like what's a really great day look like to you? And at this stage, you guys have been doing this for a while, each of you. What is the stuff that really brings you joy in your job? Well, I, for me, it's the people that I work with and that they inspire me every single day. And it's whether it's the people here at the World Trade Center or people who might be working with us based in the UK or China or anywhere else in the world that we have offices. When you see their creativity being transferred into a piece or a shoot or a video, an event, whatever it may be, I I think it's the creative process that remains always to me the most inspirational thing that you can do every day. Yeah. For me, I just, myself and my team, we just love the chaos of this environment. <laughs> I think, I think there, was, there was a time when, you know, leading GQ, it was a very specific business. It was really clear what it was meant to be. And there was an element of like needing to keep that train running down those tracks. In this day and age, it's such a dynamic world. The context is changing all the time. The platforms are changing all the time. The money's moving differently. The audience is moving differently. And thankfully, I've gotten Anna's support and leading a brand where we are just really able to experiment and try new things and meet the chaos of this moment and meet the disruption of this moment with like our own kind of chaos and disruption. And it's just an absolute joy to do this work so collaboratively as a global team with that sort of like creative freedom and responsiveness. So I'm and just grateful yeah, for that. Yeah, I think Will is right. And last night I... I hosted a, a dinner for a lot of the theater community. And I, we were talking about the roles that they choose and why they choose them. And what many of them said was, sometimes it's fear, mm. you know, and that idea of leaping into the unknown and not really knowing if you're going to be truly successful is where we push ourselves out of our, our comfort level. And I thought that that was not dissimilar from what we do. Like if you go on doing the, thing, the same old thing that's completely safe, we know might work, fine. But when you're taking a risk, even if it doesn't work, that's fine too. You can always 
try something else. But I think it's really, really important to surround yourself with people and not be frightened of moving forward and doing things differently. Yeah. Well, look, I, I congratulate you both for your willingness to keep pushing and keep going. And to your point, Anna, make yourselves a little uncomfortable because, I mean, again, it's what we feel here from what we do, too, is you, you got to keep evolving and pushing. And if you get too comfortable, you get left behind. So I can totally relate to that. So my, my last question for you, and I always ask people in, in our industry this, and I, I respect you both a lot, so I'm interested in what you have to say. What kind of advice would you have for Nordstrom? You know, we, we talked a little bit about how the department store you know, business has changed so much and how we can be relevant and modern and aspirational to customers. Do you have any input for me about what you think would be great for a multi-brand store like us? I think you're doing a lot of it already, Pete, but I, I think it's it's very connected to what Will has been saying, what I've been saying, content and community. I think you need to work to build up, whether it's through newsletters or events or social media, whatever platform you feel is best, your Nordstrom's community, and then for us, what we call content, whether you're telling your Nordstrom story, whether it's through what you're buying or what you're showing or how you're talking to your customers, and also your values. I, more and more we see our audiences today, they want to be connected to a title, a store, a designer who shares their values. And I think it's also about understanding that particularly among young people today, they really do, they are deeply, deeply concerned about climate change and sustainability. And I say to a lot of the big design houses like Hermes and Chanel, all of them, why do you not have areas in your many, many stores that has a vintage? Just why don't you not have vintage? It talks about the worth of what you're selling. It, it talks about you're investing in something that has a, a real value and you can repair it, put initials on it, whatever you may do. But fashion should not be disposable or taught to our customers or our audiences about being disposable. It has to feel more permanent. Mm, yeah. yeah. Oh, the only thing I would add to what Anna said is I think you guys have something really impactful in this digital era, which is physical space. It's something that um, a place where like a community that cares about fashion and that cares about values and sustainability and all these things, a place where they can all gather. And you guys do a fantastic job with this. And especially I'm very in touch with uh, the leaders on the menswear side of your business. And there's a lot of innovation that you guys are doing here. But just that ability to like in a digital world, bring people actually physically together and bring that space to life, because so many of us are looking for community and looking for places to gather. And you guys have that where you can like bring people from all different walks that all connect around what you do. So it's just something special that, you know, some of your competition, they don't have that those incredible physical spaces like your store on 57th Street here. Yeah, that confirms a lot to me how I, I view it too. I actually wrote a couple notes. I think it's, it's spot on what you're saying there. You know, it reminds me of a conversation I had with someone last week. They were I don't know, they were talking to a group of youngish customers. I don't know if they're millennials or what have you. But what one of the young people said is, I don't want to live my life in the phone. I want to live it out there in the world and in physical spaces, too. Because there's always this presumption that young people just want to be on, on the phone or online and not be attached to the physical world. To your point, Will, I mean, both matter. You, you got to have the accessibility, the information, the communication all comes to life because of digital. 
and reinforce that with a physical experience with people and product and all that goes with that. They both matter a lot. And that's what we're trying to do is bring those worlds together in the most seamless way. Yeah. And and just as we now, the bar is very high for us to attract our readership to print because digital is so easy, but it's still so important. And it's a great challenge for us just as You know, you guys know how to reach your audiences digitally, but how are you going to give them an absolutely spectacular experience that actually will draw them out of their homes to the store? So I I think it's a challenge for both of us that we get the opportunity to sort of like step up and meet in new ways. Great. Well, look, thank you both so much for being on the podcast with me. It was was a real pleasure to talk to you both. And um, I look forward to seeing you out there as, as I always do bumping into you somewhere <laughs> down the road, but um, let us know how we can continue to partner with you. I mean, you guys have interesting things going on and uh, we like being a part of that. Thank you, Pete. Lovely to see you. Thank Thanks you. for having us, Pete. Okay, Take care. Thank you for having us. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey. And we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to nordstrom.com slash nordypodcast, where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. We really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you received great service, or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you just might hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy, drop us a line and be part of the NordyPod. And be sure to follow us on our newly added Instagram page, at the Nordy Pod to stay up to date on new episodes, announcements, and more. And make sure to tune in next time when I sit down with founder and CEO of Anastasia Beverly Hills, Anastasia Soare. I did the um, Oprah Winfrey show and I told her I'm here to do the opening, to be at the opening of Nordstrom Michigan Avenue. And she said, oh my God, I love Mich- uh, Nordstrom's. Please say hello. That, That's yes. good. So not only that, I am there doing eyebrows. I mean, eyebrows after eyebrows. I work so long hours and somebody comes from behind and gives me a hug and I'm thinking, I'm so tired. I can't take this hug. So I look up and it was Oprah Winfrey. She came to the opening to support support me and support wow. Nordstrom opening. So that is the power of the eyebrow. Women believe in men. It's true. That's the power of the eyebrow. Dubbed the eyebrow queen, Anastasia has made a remarkable impact on the beauty business working with celebrities like Cindy Crawford and Jennifer Lopez and coaching customers through beauty tutorials on Instagram. We had a really great chat and you're not going to want to miss it. Next time on The Nordy Pod.